Welcome to City Church. City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Genesis 3, 1 and following. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes, they will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God said to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church. Being biblically-based, I wanted to take a few moments and talk about what that means. This sermon, by the way, is going to be more thoughtful than most. Not that the other ones aren't but this one more than usual. But being biblically based, I've written some things down that I want us to hear and to understand. Here we go. The stories of the Bible call us to believe. Sometimes the stories challenge us to take heroic action. And at other times, the stories call us to be still and to simply wait on God. The scripture calls us to pray to love, to live out our faith and all at a level that seems beyond our ability and calls us to trust God in ways that seem to stretch us beyond all level of human control and comfort. When the messages and the stories of the Bible are, are approached with faith, we discover a life that in God is amazing. Like in our personal lives, there are stories and events in the Bible that are pivotal, life-changing. We just read one of them. They explain why things are the way they are. It's the same with people and human lives. This week, I was talking to people about faith, the Bible, and Jesus, and here are some pivotal events that were mentioned. Someone just bought a business. There was a birth. There was a death. There was illness, there was new love, there was human brokenness. There was a life-altering moment of faith in Jesus. 
And each of these stories have deep meanings to the life of each person. The Bible has stories that have deep meaning as well. But we must understand that the Bible self-proclaims to be Holy Spirit-inspired. It is like no other book. There is so much more to the Bible than just history, stories, and wisdom. It also must be understood that when the biblical story, faith, and being spirit-led come together, it is incredible to see the life transformation that happens. I said it earlier, this sermon's going to be more thoughtful than most, so please stick with me. But another thing to note about the Bible and about Scripture is this. It is important to note with the Bible that the stories are simple and yet often sophisticated. And they are written in such a way to call us to dig and to seek and to knock and to find and to discover. I've said it before and I'm going to say it again. The Bible is an Eastern book. It is not a Western book. Westerners write in such a way where we present a thesis or present some idea, and then we pump in data to support that. That's not how the Bible is written. That is not how people in the East think. The Bible is written in such a way that there are stories, and in the stories there are clues, there's information, there's themes, And when you begin to discover the clues and the themes, you begin to be drawn into the story. In the East, a good story is one that forces you to discover what it is you need to know. A bad story tells you on the surface what you need to know. The Bible is written like Eastern literature. Not only is it written in that thoughtful manner, but... In and of itself, the Bible is extremely sophisticated, extremely sophisticated. For example, for the past several weeks, we have been in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We've looked at creation, the six days of creation in Genesis 1, and then we looked at the creation of humankind in Genesis 2, and now we're dealing with the fall. But what you might not know is how sophisticated Genesis chapter 1 truly is. Let me explain, and again, I know this is more thoughtful than normal, but please stay with me. Please stay with me. In the scriptures, if you see the number 3, 7, 10, or 12, you need to know that number's there, and it's not just counting something. Those are biblical numbers. And when the writers use those numbers, they are there to indicate a deeper meaning, a much deeper meaning. So to read the Bible like an Easterner, if you see the number 3, 7, 10, or 12, you instantly know there's a deeper meaning here. I need to slow down, investigate the story, because God has something that's not on the surface to teach me. And to show me. I referenced already Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We've spent a few weeks there. Let me show you some of the sophistication in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we have the six days of creation. 
Here goes some of the sophistication. The word barak, which means to create, actually means to bring order out of chaos. That's huge. That means the God of the Bible can step into your chaos and bring order. Not only this, but the word barak, which we translate create. The word barak finds itself at the beginning of the creation story, in the middle of the creation story, and at the end. And in the final verse of the creation story, the word barak is there three times. The number three. Not only this. If you read the six days of creation like an Easterner, you would discover that the first three days, God separates things. And in the final three days, he fills what he separated. Read it again. The, begins, the beginning says God created, God barak the heavens and the earth, but the six days God separates. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. No, let me throw it in now. The first three, God separates. Remember well, God separates light from darkness, night from day, earth from sky, and sea from land. He actually is separating. If you were to read on, you would discover that there's those three days of creation, or the three days of separation, then three days of filling. Then the number seven shows up. There are seven days of creation. That's obvious. But to anyone who reads the Bible appropriately, when you see the seven, you know something deeper is trying to be shared. So here we go. In the Hebrew, the first verse has seven words. In the Hebrew, the second word, verse has 14 words, all divisible by seven. The seventh verse has 35 words in Hebrew. The word earth in the creation story of Genesis 1 is used 21 times. The word God is used 35 times. The phrase it was so is spoken seven times. And God saw spoken seven times. Then the number 10 shows up. The phrase to make is shared 10 times. According to its kind, 10 times. And God said is spoken ten times, three times to people and seven times to creatures. Let there be is spoken ten times, three times to the heavens and seven times to things on earth. You see, when you look at Genesis chapter 1 and you read it like an Easterner, suddenly it's simple but profoundly sophisticated, profoundly sophisticated. Not only are there these numbers that appear and are hidden in the text that we're called to seek out, but there's also a literary tool used in Eastern literature that's called a chiasm. A chiasm. And a chiasm is an Eastern literary device that shows thoughtful writing and a much deeper meaning. Let's go back to the six days of creation. Remember I told you that the three days of separation, then there are three days of filling what's been separated. What is clear in the intent of the writer is that that is a chiastic approach. Three days, three days, and they fold over on each other. And the seam down the middle is the exact point of what's being said. 
So knowing that chiasms are part of Scripture, when you see one and you experience it, you know to find the middle of it, and then you'll know the purpose for why it was written. Let me give you an example. Day number five in the text deals with fish and birds. That correlates with day two, when the sky and sea are created. Day number six correlates with day three, because in creation day six, animals and humanity are made, and where would they live? Land and water. That's day three. So what everyone who knows and reads the creation account like an Easterner knows, it's a chiasm. It folds over on itself, and what is down the middle is the main purpose. Again, today's sermon, much more thoughtful than normal. As we read our text, we read beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. Today, I would like to just simply share the last verse of chapter 2 because we started reading in 3.1. Genesis 2.25 tells us this. It's the end of the creation narrative just before the fall. Genesis 2.25. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Creation was exactly as God had intended. But then, Genesis 3.1, we meet a snake. But before we get to that, what you may or may not know is that Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 is a chiasm. That's why I've been teaching on it. It's a chiasm in the middle verse is number 7. Genesis 3.7. And the middle verse is this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. That's the purpose of those 11 verses. It's a chiasm. So the central idea of the fall has to do with nakedness. It's fascinating. Now, Genesis 3.1 is where we began our reading. As we take an in-depth look at the story that we read, Genesis 3.1 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, when we read it, it sounds like sort of questioning. But in the Hebrew... Satan is saying, God lied to you, Eve. That's literally what he says. For example, if there are three of us in this room, let's say two of us and myself, and we have a common experience, and after that common experience, I were to leave, and someone would look at you and say something about me, and it was wrong, it was a lie, it wasn't true. And that second person comes to tell me about it. And they say, Pete, you'll never believe, but the other person that was there with us, here's what they said about you. And my response in Hebrew would be, did they really say? Did they really say that? It's the denoting of a lie. And so in this text, what we discover is Satan comes to Eve and says to Eve, did God really say that? Eve, 
God lied to you. He lied. God lies. Now, the other thing in the text is it's the first time a question has ever been asked in all of the Bible. We've been through two chapters of creation and there have been no questions. Now when the serpent shows up, questions begin. Now, there are two types of questions. There's one that God honors. And that's where if you have sincere questions about faith, sincere questions about Jesus, sincere questions about the Bible, and your goal is to come to the truth and to dig, that's the type of questioning that God honors, but that's not the questioning that Satan introduces into the world that the serpent brings. The type of questioning that the serpent brings is the type of questioning that's there to undermine truth and to undermine God and to undermine the fact that God is good. Ultimately, the questions that Satan mentions to Eve, those questions are leading her to the understanding that God is holding out on you, Eve. God knows that if you eat the fruit, you will be like him. And... You will be like him by knowing good from evil or knowing good and evil. You will be like God. And then picking up in Genesis chapter 3 verses 4 through 5, here's what the text says. Satan looks at Eve and he says, you won't die. You will not certainly die, Eve. The serpent said to the woman, by the way, we're going to deal with this next week. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I have a question. And I texted this question to several friends this week. Here's my question. If you were to choose something by which you could be like God, what would it be? What would it be? So I texted some friends. One friend of mine who serves here at City texted me back and said would, how they'd like to be God or be like God is that they could see the potential in people and then actually empower them to live out their fullest potential. That's pretty noble, isn't it? Someone else said that they would know the lottery numbers. You know that's in there. Someone else said to me, a friend of mine, who we've journeyed together in faith for about 30 years, he texted me back and said, I think that's a blasphemous question. I don't want to answer it. Oh, he's so spiritual. <laughs> but you know what no one wrote? That they would be like God, knowing good and evil. No one. And what has stumped me in reading this text, and I have dug and dug and I still don't know the answer, is how knowing good and evil, like God, was a temptation to Eve. I don't understand it. I'm still trying to figure that one out. Because the temptation for me to be like God would be, have to do with omniscience or omnipresence or being all-powerful, being able to create, yes, maybe knowing the lottery number, whatever it is. 
But none of us, no one texted me back and said, I want to be like God, knowing good and evil. And here's the thing, Eve already knew something about death and evil. She already knew about death. She had to. Otherwise, how would it be a deterrent when God said to Eve, if you eat of it, you will what? She had to know about death if that's going to be a deterrent. She knew about that. And then it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Lucifer or the serpent comes and says, you will be like God knowing good and evil. It was the sense she had to have a notion of evil. Otherwise, how could that have tempted her? But in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of this, what obviously drew her in was the ability to be like God, whatever that would mean to her. Now, as I read that verse, I was drawn back to when I was a kid in the mid-70s and the early 80s. Some of you weren't around then. But back then, I'm 56 now, but back then, the New Age movement was really hitting the U.S., still here, but it was a big deal, New Age movement, big, big deal. And um, part of that was they had a doctrine that said all of us can become gods, all of us. And Shirley MacLaine, who is an actress, was one of the main spokespeople for the New Age movement. And she did this TV show. She was a very gifted actress, actually. She did some Alfred Hitchcock films and some other things. But um, she did this four-TV movie show kind of a thing where she ends up, and at the end of it, Shirley MacLaine is on this gorgeous beach, and she's walking into the ocean, and she lifts up her hands when she gets about waist deep, and she makes this declaration, I am God. And me being like a snarky teenager, when I saw that, here's what I thought. If you're God, why don't you keep walking? Why did you get this deep and stop? Just keep going. Come on, Shirley, become amphibious. Just keep going. And she stopped. You see, the idea here is there is something that tempts us to be like God. It was one of the main doctrines and tenets of the New Age movement. It finds itself all the way back in the Garden of Eden where the enemy of our soul comes to Eve and says, you can be like God. But I want us to notice God had warned Adam and he had now no doubt told Eve. He had warned her. God had warned Adam. And it's interesting to note that when God speaks of the tree, it says not that he said it, it's that it's a command. God commanded them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they do, they will die. Again, we're going to look at that next week. Well, when I grew up, I had a chore that was mine to do on the farm. And it involved this saw. And my mother, who's watching online from Greenville, South Carolina, can attest to this. I was probably in third grade and was using this saw. And how this saw works is, by the way, if you really work it right, this thing can cut through a log like butter. But my dad would pull me aside, and before I would hit the chore of cutting up these logs, my dad would say to me three things. Number one, always sharpen the saw. 
the most dangerous saw is a dull one. It's counterintuitive, but it's true. The sharper the saw, the safer it is. So he would tell me that. Then number two, he would say, make sure when you go to cut the log that it's on a stable platform. And so what I'd always do is I would stack the logs and the top log would be wedged between the other two. It'd be about waist height because it's much easier to cut when it's waist height than bending over. So I would stack them up and put them at waist height. My dad would always say, that's fine, but make sure it's stable before you cut. And then the third one was focus. Stay focused. Well, when you're eight years old, staying focused doesn't last long. So I had used the saw many, many times, but I was probably eight or nine years old, and I was cutting, and I lost focus, and I didn't check and make sure the top log, which was a pretty big one, was actually secure and wedged in in the pile. So I was sawing it, and what ended up happening was when I made a stroke back towards myself, a rather large log, which the saw was wedged in, ended up rolling off of the log it was on, and it bent the saw sideways so I couldn't pull it out. And as I was trying to pull it out, it landed on the ground and dragged the saw across my kneecap. So I discovered what the inside of a kneecap looks like. But guess what the first thought I had was? Anyone guess? My dad's going to kill me. That's what I thought of. That's exactly what Adam and Eve do. You have to catch this. That's exactly what Adam and Eve do. They hide from God. It's the same thing. They hide from God and they cover themselves. And in the midst of their hiding, as we move towards closing, is God asks three profound questions. Three profound questions. And as we put feet to our faith, I want to ask us the same three questions. First of all, the first question God ever asks anywhere in Scripture is this, where are you? Hmm. It's a fascinating question. We know God's omniscient. We know God's omnipresent. It's not like he doesn't know where Adam and Eve are. The text tells us they're hiding in the trees from God. They have covered themselves with leaves. We're going to look at all of that next week. But what we know is God knows where they are. He knows. And what's interesting in the Hebrew is there's two ways to ask the question, where are you? One of them is, the following way, which is how the text asks it, it's that something should be here and it's not, where is it? For example, one of my daughters has a blue tick coonhound and her name's Banks. And I took the coonhound into the yard or the dog was out there with me and I was working. And my daughter comes out and she says, where is Banks. I had not been paying attention, and Banks was gone. Now that's the question that God asks. Banks should be here. Banks isn't here. Where's Banks? Do you get this? And then my daughter whistled, said something about treats and more food, and the dog came barreling around the corner at 100 miles an hour. But when God says out loud, 
Adam, where are you? A voice impishly says from the woods, I'm hiding because I'm naked. And what's the next question? Who told you you were naked? Weird question. Odd question. And the idea is, is God says to Eve, Eve, Adam, you've been naked since the day I made you. You've always been naked. The end of Genesis chapter 2 says that they are naked and unashamed. They're exactly how God has intended. And then suddenly they're hiding. They know they're naked. And God asks a fascinating question. Who told you? So intrinsically embedded in that question is this. Who are you listening to? Who's your ear tuned into? Is it tuned into the adversary of your soul? If it is, I promise you, your life is filled with guilt and shame and dysfunction and brokenness and heartache and sorrow about how you view yourself. But God knows that Adam and Eve's view of themselves didn't come from him. And everything he'd told them and everything he'd done for them up until that point defied the position where they are now. And therefore, God says, where are you? Adam, Eve, you should be here. You're not here. And then, who have you been listening to? Who have you been listening to? And then the final question. The final question is this. Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? That's next week. Would you stand with me as we close? As we move towards worship, we're going to sing a song that combats the lie that Satan gives to Eve. Did God really say? And the undertone of it is, Eve, God's not good. He's actually holding out on you, Eve. Oh, Eve, God's holding out on you, and he's undermining the goodness of God. And so the worship song that we're going to be led in now that Laren's going to lead us in is a song that speaks to the goodness of God. And in a world that screams against God's goodness, I want us to worship him with all of our hearts because God truly is good.